0: Hello, welcome to the ATC Double Cut. I'm recording from a hotel room in Tokyo and it seems to me that I've been traveling for a long time. In July I was in Europe and then from early August I was in New Zealand and I was traveling around there, then I went to Thailand for a few days and then I flew to Japan and I've been traveling around Japan and tomorrow I've got another international flight after some meetings in Tokyo. Yesterday, I flew up from Okinawa a day early to escape a typhoon to make sure that I wouldn't miss those meetings in Tokyo. And it's a good thing that I did. Because the flights, the flight that I was going to be on today was canceled along with scores of other flights from Naha. So everything's going pretty good. Uh, And I have a chance this afternoon to record a double cut, which I am very glad to do because I've got a few blog posts that I want to talk about and we can jump right in. There are four of them that I will go over in this episode. The first one is about manganese. Now this is something that I posted the full version on the Turf website in the member update section. So if you're a Turf member you would have received this in the weekly update email, and you would have access to the full post on the website. And if you're interested in a Turf subscription, you can get that at PaceTurf.org. Now, I was writing in this one, and I I summarized on the ATC website kind of the take-home point, which was that a photo that Mark Smith from the UK posted where he had attributed a green up response to a manganese application and he had thought that his turf was deficient in manganese and he attributed the green up response after applying manganese and amino acids and kelp and the weather changed and he attributed the green up to manganese and I was like, okay, maybe it was, but I want to know a little bit more because I'm not so quick to accept that any element would be deficient. And I'm still learning about this, so I want to learn. I was curious. So I contacted Mark privately. I sent him a, a direct message on Twitter and he quickly wrote back and shared what his manganese levels were. And the soil manganese was 11 parts per million in the previous soil test that he had before he'd made this manganese application. Now, you can see a link to this. I'll put a direct link to this post. And from that post, you can get a direct link to click through to see the picture that he shared. And the grass was really, really green. Now, maybe the manganese had some effect on that greening. But I think if you don't have a check plot, if you don't have any kind of control plot, then you have a number of things that have changed, so it's impossible to say. Um, it's impossible to say that the manganese caused it. But if it turned out that the manganese really was deficient, then I would be more, um, more likely to believe that the manganese actually was what caused that greening effect. But the problem is, you have. Uh, rainfall, you have uh, time that passes, you have temperatures that change. So as, as you have changes in soil moisture, changes in temperature, and time, then you have possible mineralization of nitrogen in the soil, and you also have various types of microbial activity happening in the soil, and you may have a greening response after precipitation. Or you may have made an irrigation event. That would also change soil moisture, possibly change turf color. So there's all that that could be going on. And I believe his spray contained an amino acid fertilizer, which contains nitrogen. And I believe the spray may also have contained kelp. But he wrote that he was pretty certain that it was the manganese that had caused that. And I think it would be nice to... uh, to consider that logically and and just say, okay, if you've got all of these things changing, probably we can just say that the combination of all those things changing, the manganese being added, the amino acid being added, the kelp being added, the weather changing, the irrigation happening, the, the rainfall happening, the temperature changing, all of those things taken together or all of those things combined, certainly did cause the grass to become very green. But it's tricky to say, it's very tricky to say only one of those things is what caused this. So anyway, to go specifically into the manganese issue, 11 parts per million on a Malik-3 test is pretty low. It is pretty low. And I was curious just how low is that? And I realized I had quite a bit of data from various experiments that I've done over the years in which I've taken soil samples and leaf tissue samples that were collected on the same day. And so those are what I call paired samples because we've got a soil sample and from that same area from which the soil sample was collected, we have a paired sample of the leaf tissue so, I can look at the manganese in the soil, and on the same day, I can look at what the manganese was in the leaf tissue. So, from that, I made a chart. And on this chart, I looked, it turned out that I had four grasses. I looked at this for creeping bent grass, which I labeled as AS for agrostis stolonifera. And I have data for them for three warm season grasses. Sinodendactylin, Paspalum vaginatum, and Zoysia metrella. And there's quite a range of soil manganese that goes from something around 8. What, what's the lowest that I've measured? Let me check in the blog post. What did I say? Uh, let's see. Mark Mark's was at 11. I wrote this actually in the pasturef update, um, and I'm not going to zoom in that far. I'll I have to check that on the PaceTurf site. I think one of the lowest that I've measured is something like six or eight parts per million. It's, uh, it's it's definitely below ten parts per million in the soil. Then in the leaf tissue, I've never measured anything less than twenty parts per million. And if we look at some other recommendations from textbooks, they say that a a deficient level in the leaf tissue for manganese would be 20 parts per million. So what I conclude from this analysis is that even at levels of soil manganese below t- 10 parts per million I still haven't ever measured in the tissue where it's deficient. So, I guess from that, that Mark's manganese was not really deficient at 11 parts per million, but definitely it is lower than usual. And when I worked through the analysis of all the soils, also looking at the MLSN data set where we don't have tissue data, looking at the soil, also looking at the global soil survey data where we have soils from good performing turf i concluded that the sustainability index which is a comparison of one's actual soil test to the levels that are found in the global soil survey database or the mlsn database if we do that uh, we get a level of 0.14 and that means Fourteen percent of good performing turf is expected to be grown in soils that are less than that eleven part per million value that Mark Smith found in, or that he had in his soil, and you'd have eighty six percent of soils would have more manganese. So it's the, the actual diagnosis of this is it's it's pretty low, but it wouldn't be like at a critically deficient level at which the plant leaf would not be able to get enough manganese. Now, Larry Stoll and I have had a follow-up conversation about this, and Larry said, well, lots of people do get a visual response to manganese, and it's a well-known phenomenon that if you spray manganese on turf grass, in, in some cases it will tend to have a color response and it will turn greener. And that may not be a deficiency. It's just like when you spray iron. When you spray iron, you can often cause the turf to take on a darker color, but that's not really correcting an iron deficiency. It's um, It's just staining the leaf, basically, and, and making it temporarily darker. Now, I don't know so much about the manganese greening effect and the... um the image that Mark Smith showed certainly looked like a true greening, not like any type of staining like you see with iron. So there there may be something that needs to be studied a bit more about this. Um, and, And I think Larry made a very good point that if people are seeing a visual response with manganese, then maybe we don't call it deficiency. But if something's happening, there, there needs to be a word for whatever it is that's happening. Um, so it's it certainly got me thinking about it. Um, thinking about uh, studying this one a little bit more and uh, trying to understand that color response a little bit better. So that's one that um, that I would encourage you to... Look at and, and read the full post over on the PaceTurf site. And then uh, the next post I want to talk about is ATC Double Cut Listeners by Country. And what happened was I, I host my blog on the Transistor platform, which I've been very pleased with. And it provides some stats about how many downloads I've had and. It says from which country they came from. Now, a download on a podcast means a listen. When you listen to a podcast on a player, you're downloading it from where it's stored on the transistor website. And so they know that somebody's downloaded it. But I don't know if it's been completely listened to or not, if, if the entire episode's been listened, or if, if it's uh, it's just a, a start. Somebody downloaded it and start somebody started to listen to it. So because I have those stats, I thought it would be interesting to look at where the most people are listening to this. So I checked that out. And top five are all English speaking countries. In uh, Number one was the United States. Number two was the United Kingdom. Number three, Canada. Number four, Australia. Number five, Ireland. And this was from April of this year. I looked at April 1st of this year up until the middle of August. And after those top five, which were all English-speaking countries, the next five, uh, well, the next four are not English-speaking. The next, uh, okay, obviously people speak English because, or they understand English to listen to it, but they uh, have a different native language. So that number six was Denmark number seven was Spain, number eight was Germany, number nine was Sweden, and then number 10, we have another English-speaking country, New Zealand, rounded out the top 10. Now, after I posted that, Bjarni Hannisson from Iceland contacted me with a interesting request, which was, can you please do this on a per capita basis, on a population-adjusted basis? because the United States obviously has a large population, so it makes sense that they might be number one, but if you account for how many people could potentially listen to the podcast in a country, and then you look at how many actually do, it's a different ranking. Some countries stayed on the list, surprisingly. I thought this might all go to smaller countries. So when I adjusted this for population, Number one was Monaco, and I don't know who's listening to this in Monaco. Um, number two is Iceland. So I know Bjarni, at least, is listening to this in Iceland. He's one of the people listening in Iceland. But I'm not sure who's listening in Monaco. So if if you are listening to this show in Monaco, um, I'd be happy to hear from you, um, and and uh, I, I appreciate the listens from there. Now, Ireland stayed on the list. In fact, they moved up to number three. Denmark stayed on the list. They moved up to number four. St. Lucia, which is in the Caribbean, comes in at number five. So I guess that may be Damon Giorgio, who was recently on the Talking Greenkeeper podcast with Joe Gulati. Maybe it uh, could be some other people working on the project down there. Number six is New Zealand. So New Zealand stayed on the list and moved up from ten to 6th. Australia stayed on the list. They come in at number 7th. Then Slovenia. Then the United Kingdom, which does have a pretty big population. Uh, And so I'm impressed at the number of listens from there. And also Canada. So um, it kind of rearranges some of the countries but also brings in some of the countries with a smaller population, like Slovenia and St. Lucia and Monaco and Iceland. So that was a fun one. And I know these kind of blog posts tend not to get very many views at all. Um, But I like looking at some of that kind of stuff for my own uh, interest. So that that was kind of fun. I may do that again. In I don't know in a year or so and and see how that works. Now, the next one that I'm going to talk about is a post that I called Highlights from my presentations in New Zealand. You may know that in August I was in New Zealand for the Golf Matters New Zealand Golf Conference and Expo, which was held on the 8th to the 10th of August in Christchurch on the South Island. This was really a A wonderful conference. I enjoyed it tremendously and I enjoyed what I talked about tremendously. I recorded screencasts of both presentations and in the blog, I put links to those screencasts. So in this post, I put links to the screencasts. I embedded the screencasts, I think, at the bottom of the posts. Yes, I did. It's those are embedded so you can just watch straight from the blog. And I also tried to highlight the key points. And these are topics that I am passionate about. I'm I'm really interested in these because I think that the topics that I spoke about in New Zealand offer a framework for any golf course to get continuously better conditions. And then once you get the conditions perfect, it lets you optimize the way that you achieve them. So it's a way to constantly get closer and closer to what you're trying to achieve. And to be able to do that in the most efficient manner possible. The first presentation had a topic, uh, sorry, a title of methods for site specific optimization. Actually, I called it, uh, what was it? Beyond the Textbook, Methods for Site-Specific Optimization. And I talked about some of the things that I like to measure, and especially when it comes to refining the amount of top-dressing sand and the amount of disruptive coring that is done or anything that's done to manage the organic matter. Now, it's it's not only that. I talked about other things, but I included... Um, I mean, it's all in this frame. It's all in the framework of measuring the playing conditions of the turf grass. Measure the surface performance. So on putting greens, I like to measure the green speed, and I like to measure the bobble test, so we know how fast the ball is rolling, and we know the quality of the ball roll. I don't talk about firmness, so much because I have assumed that people are just happy with that but if you want to measure firmness either use a meter or do what I think is completely suitable and I think I spoke about this with Carl Scamenti in a in a ATC office hours earlier this year one can Rate the greens. One can rate or assess green firmness on a three-level scale. The greens are either too soft, they're at an appropriate level of firmness, or they are too firm. They that to me is sufficient. I don't think most golfers are clamoring to know exactly what the firmness number is on the green but they might consider the greens to be too soft they might consider them to be just right or they might consider them to be too firm so i think that's a way to assess it and you can just use a one two three score for that and in uh in that way one can track what the firmness levels are so we we know the performance we can keep track of that the speed the quality of the roll, and the firmness. And then also keep track of how much work is done, which would be like how many times do we mow, how much nitrogen is applied, how much sand is applied. So we, we have our inputs, which is the work that has been done, and we also know the outputs or the end result, which is the playing conditions that we achieve. But it's easier to adjust the output, right? We're trying to adjust the output, and we do that by adjusting the inputs, right? Because we're trying to make the playing conditions either more consistent or achieve a certain type of playing condition, a certain level of playing condition for more times in the year, more days in the year, for a longer duration of the golfing season right we're trying we're trying to optimize that output and we can keep tinkering with the inputs we can keep adjusting the nitrogen we can keep adjusting the amount of sand the methods that we're using the machines that we're using to apply the sand we can keep adjusting those but the trick the thing that i think is is so useful to make sure that we're adjusting the outputs in the right way and adjusting the inputs in the right way so that we actually achieve what we're looking for um, and and can be really confident that we're gonna achieve what we're looking for is to measure how the plant is actually responding. And we can do that by measuring the clipping volume, which tells us how much above, above ground plant material we are producing. And we can also measure the organic matter in the soil by the method that I call OM246. That's the total organic material in the soil. And if we do that, we can tell how much growth has happened underground. So we have these in-between measurements, right? They're somewhere in between the playing conditions that we want, and they're in between the work that we've done to achieve those playing conditions. By measuring how much the grass grows above ground and by measuring how much organic matter is produced below ground, we now have a way to see how those in-between measurements have an effect on the playing conditions. And we also have a way to check what the direct results of the work is in terms of plant response. I explained that in the presentation that I recorded as a screencast on methods for site-specific optimization. I think this is a really fun way to manage because it, it gives immediate feedback. It gives immediate feedback what the results of the work are and we can start to correlate that to the playing conditions. So I wrote in the blog post, with these bits of information, it is straightforward to adjust to create more growth or less growth or schedule more soil organic matter management or less and so on with a goal of optimizing the playing conditions and doing all the disruptive work that is necessary but no more than that. The second presentation I gave in New Zealand is about MLSN, which I call a modern method for turfgrass nutrition. I explained in the presentation why MLSN is a modern method. It's a modern method because the old methods, like SLAN or BCSR, are based on old research that is not based on the way turfgrass is managed today and it's not based on the type of soils in which turfgrass is grown today, we, can, we can't really fix those old methods. The, it's not possible to take those old methods and apply them in the global turfgrass management industry in the many varied soils and grass species and grass varieties and types of playing surfaces for all different types of sport that are produced today. But there's a nice solution, which is just to bypass those, just just forget about doing it the old way and use a modern method. MLSN is a modern method that it looks not so much at how much we want in the soil, but instead, it's looking at how much the plant will use. So it's saying for any grass, anywhere in the world, let's figure out how much of each element it needs. And the amount that it needs is the amount that it uses. And then we add in an extra amount that we want to keep in the soil. We, we have an extra amount beyond the amount that the grass uses that we want to keep in the soil as a safety reserve, as a buffer. But the main thing that we're doing with MLSN is saying, how much could the grass possibly use? Let's make sure that we either supply that amount as fertilizer or we, um, we allow the soil to supply that amount if the soil has ample amounts of that element, or we allow the soil to supply some and we provide the remaining amount that the grass will use as fertilizer. That's what MLSN does, and that's why it's a modern method because it bypasses and overcomes all of the problems with those old methods. This uh, is something that works well for turf all over the world and i recorded the screencast for that also so you can watch both of those on youtube you can um, watch those at your leisure and i know the screencasts that i record tend to get quite a few views so i i know some people are watching those and it's something that i've tried to do for many years and i'm getting better at it now um, I. I still struggle with my hardware setup and with my audio setup and with my uh, time available to do recordings and with uh, with where I'm able to do recordings and so on. But with uh, encouragement from the late John Scott, who really wanted me to do this, I've um, every time I record one of these, I think of John and wish that he was still around to give me to watch these and then give me feedback on them because he always said he wished he could have been at the presentations. And rather than just me blogging about them, he wanted to hear what I had to say. Um, So with the encouragement of John Scott, I finally started doing it. And with the help of Bjarni Hannison, I've got a bit of an audio setup that makes it listenable the first time. So I don't have to spend so much time doing post, uh, production, post shooting editing. And um, yeah, and then I just have to work to find the time and, and, and I'm able to record some of these. So I, I love to share this information. It's kind of I mean, it's fun to speak at conferences. It's definitely fun. And, and it's, it's much better, I think, with an audience, because when I do give a presentation, if you've been to one of my presentations, it tends to be Interactive it, at the ones in New Zealand, there were a lot of people in the audience asking questions, and then I answer those questions and we have a discussion as we go through. But as a backup, um, or I mean, as an alternative for the people who couldn't be there for the live presentation, I record these as a screencast. So that is another post that you'll find on the blog. Again, all of these will be. Uh, linked in the show notes and then here's the most recent blog post which is do more people watch or listen to the ATC double cut I started this as a video series and did a few videos in um, I think October certainly in November of 2021 in the autumn of 2021 and then on December 1st as a podcast also. So since December 1st of last year, it's been nine months and I've had 45 new episodes since then. In total, there's 50 episodes. I think this might be the 51st or the 52nd, but since December 1st, there's been 45. So I looked at the data because I can look at how many people um or how many times the podcast has been downloaded, which means a listened how many how many times did a listen happen? So I can look in at that and then I can also look at the um, on on YouTube, I can also look at how many times the videos have been viewed. Now, neither of these tell me how many times it's been finished, right? It could just be somebody clicking and listening to my voice for two seconds and saying, oh, that guy, <laughs> I am i don't need to hear from him. Or, or they could watch on YouTube because they like the thumbnail and then they click on it and see, oh, this is definitely not something I'm interested in. And they just close that video out and never watch anymore. So, um... Not not all of these are like full watches or full listens, but these are what the numbers are. It's just like the numbers when somebody, uh, when we have numbers for blog post views, right, or, or page views on a website, it doesn't mean somebody actually read the entire blog post, but I have some data on at least how many times people visited that page. So when I looked at that, um, it was interesting. I broke this down by month. And I made a ridgeline plot where I showed a density curve, which is the distribution uh, by month for the number of people who viewed or listened to an episode in each month. The, The chart that I'm showing on the screen now has blue curves for each month for the podcast, and red curves for each month for YouTube. So this is going from December of last year through August of 2022 of this year. And in December and January, when this was just getting started, there were similar views for podcasts in YouTube. In fact, YouTube uh, had a, a little bit higher number of views, which were right about 100 per episode. And then from February, ever since February, the podcast has been outperforming YouTube in terms of views. So I I expect that more of you are listening to this than are watching it. And it was a steady progression, an increase from about 75 views per episode on average in December up to a peak... In May, of about 200 and 225 on the the highest uh, density of episode, the the most episodes in May had about two hundred and twenty five views per episode. So it went from about seventy five up to about two twenty five. Now, since May, it's gone down. In June, the it's more like one hundred and seventy five. in July, more like one hundred and fifty. Uh, listens per episode. This is just talking about the podcast version. And in August, about 125. But I don't think that's a real decline. Um, I think people just delay listening to this. And especially when they're busy with projects, whether that's in the southern hemisphere winter, or whether that's uh, busy keeping grass alive and and cutting a lot of grass and Uh, trying to find water or spread water to keep grass uh, alive and performing well in the northern hemisphere summer, I think people delay listening. So I'm expecting that when I come back and look at these data six months from now, we would see the June numbers would go up and match or exceed the May numbers, and the same thing with July and August. So the most recent episodes that have been posted are not going to be uh, downloaded as many times as something back in May. So I assume there's like a three-month delay in how people are listening to this as a podcast. Now, obviously, some people are listening to it within a day or two of it coming out. Other people listen to it within a week. And then other people just do this on a as-they-have-time basis. So that's something that I'll check because if... If these podcast views are really declining and uh, June and July and August never catch up with May, then I need to consider <laughs> how to uh, do more podcasts like I did in May that that people were actually listening to. Now, YouTube's been growing too. Um, from February up until July, it had a steady increase to where um, it's somewhere around... It started off about 50 views per episode. Now it's up somewhere around 100 views for, per episode. So there's still a substantial number of views on YouTube. And it's interesting, you see in May, June, and July, there's some peaks that are way out around uh, 200, 300, even up around 500. Because there's a few episodes, a few topics that people are interested in. And because YouTube has such a huge number of um potential watchers. YouTube has a lot of uh, people using YouTube search to find information on certain topics. So it turns out that a few of the episodes, a few of the topics that I talk about are going to reach quite a few people on YouTube that they won't ever reach as a podcast. So it's interesting to me to look at this. Again, this is another one of those topics that I think... um, most of the viewers are not as interested in the internal analytics of ATC uh, blog posts and, uh, and uh, you know, exactly how many how many people are listening as I am, but I find it interesting to put a few of, of these pieces of data out there. And it is interesting, I think, for anybody else that's podcasting or anybody else that's putting videos on on youtube or or something or you know if you're turf net if you're peter mccormick at TurfNet and they're getting uh, i don't know i mean maybe 200 500 a thousand views per episode or if you earth works um you know they've got their podcast it, it, it's interesting for them to see the type of numbers that i'm getting if you're pulling weeds if you're uh the talking greenkeeper i think you know i hear a lot of people saying that they're getting Considerably higher numbers than these, um, and I, I, I i think with with YouTube it's easy to check, right? I can because the uh, number of views are pretty much shown on every video. So if if GCSAA TV, if their YouTube account, I think they have a YouTube channel. If if they post a video and it gets five thousand views and then I know that I'm only getting 100 views per episode, well, then we know that they're doing, what is that? They're doing 500 times better than I am or 50 times better than I am in terms of the number of people watching the videos. But with podcasting, it's not so easy to tell because everybody's got their own data and they don't really... uh, they don't have to share it. And so a few people have told me some of the numbers that they're getting. And I think it's uh there may be 10 people in the turf grass industry who are interested in these kind of numbers. So I don't mind to share it. Uh I'm not I'm not terribly excited about how many people are listening. I wish it was more, but I'm not surprised either because I know that there's only uh a core number of people, a limited number of people who actually are this interested in turfgrass to listen to podcasts where I'm just talking about turfgrass issues. And I, I compared this in the blog post, I compared this to my website also. So if we add together the number of views and downloads, meaning uh, the video watches and the podcast listens. So if we add those together for each of the past 45 episodes, the median value is 213. So each episode is uh, is combined between videos and, and podcast listens is getting 213 as a medium value. And the mean is 235, a little bit higher. For comparison, the average blog post that I wrote in 2021 had a median of 208 page views and a mean of 334 page views. So that's very close. That's quite similar now um, between what the blog is getting and what the ATC Double Cut show is getting in terms of views and downloads. So I should... I don't know. I think it's confusing when I say download because uh, unless you're a podcaster, you might... uh, you might not know how that works. So views and listens might be a better way to say it. Of course, when I send out, uh, I've been surprised at how many people sign up to get the blog by email. That That list has just exceeded 500 subscribers. So every time I do, do a new blog post update, that goes out to more than 500 email addresses. So that's awesome. I'm I'm glad that there's... People who are wanting to get that information in any way possible. And I'm trying to put that information out, out in ways that are easy for people to get it. So, between the hundreds of people getting it, getting the blog by email, then me talking about it and posting it on YouTube and uh, making it available as a podcast here on the ATC Double Cut Show. And then also just the people that go and actually visit the blog to read it. Uh, I guess this information goes out to, uh, well, it certainly goes out to some hundreds of people every every time I have a new episode. I wish I could show you the view out my window right now. It's a a lovely view of the old Tsukiji fish market, which has now been torn down, and they're developing that for something else. And uh, I believe they're moving the fish market to another. Uh, place a couple kilometers away, but it's a beautiful day in Tokyo. There's uh, lots of nice uh, Architecture to look at but when I open the window uh, There's so much light flooding in that it just uh, The lighting would be much worse than it already is on this video. You absolutely Would not be able to see my face and my glorious mustache that uh, I I had a good day with the humidity and the, uh, the wax and I was able to get it to hold together um, pretty well for this uh, 40 minute or so conversation. So sometimes I, I struggle with the mustache more than that. I'm so thrilled that today it worked out well. Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you'll check out some of those blog posts. Check out the manganese thing on uh, on the PaceTurf website with, with the full analysis of that and I'll sign off and be back next time with more turfgrass information for ATC from Tokyo, Japan. I am Micah Woods.